Let us begin our sermon with prayer. Gracious Lord, as your son hung on the cross, there came three hours of darkness before his death. As we read the Passion history, Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention this, but each quickly covers it with one brief sentence. Oh, how easily we can scan over that with our eyes and miss the tremendous awe of this miracle. Therefore, we ask you to work through the words of today's sermon that we may grasp the gravity of this three-hour event and understand its meaning. Amen. During this Lent season, we have been covering the theme rays of divine glory as seen in Christ's passion. And one of the ways we see Christ's uh, divine glory is in his love. There are, there are seven statements he makes from the cross, and the first three all show a godly love. As his enemies are nailing him to the cross, and he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He shows a supernatural, a godly love for his enemies. Then, those two criminals who had begun the day uh, ridiculing him, and, and before noon, the one repents regrets what he said, sees Jesus as the Savior, and he prays to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus tells him, truly I tell you this day, you will be with me in paradise. And so Jesus shows godly love for those who repent in him. Right after making that statement, he looks down and sees his best friend, the disciple John, and sees his mother weeping. How that must have tore at her heart just as Simeon had prophesied would happen when Jesus was a baby and was presented at the temple. And so knowing his half-brother James is going to be one of the early Christian martyrs, he's God, he knows all things, he says to his best friend John, basically, here is your mother, and to his mother, here is your son, what he was requesting was that John may treat her as his own mother, and John did. In that, we see God, Jesus' godly love for those who love him. Now, after that comes today's sermon text, which is today we'll focus on Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And with that, today we see rays of divine glory as seen in Christ's passion in the darkness before Christ's death. Now, many years ago, actually just a couple of years ago, probably the biggest eclipse I'll ever see in my lifetime occurred, and Casper, Wyoming was ground zero for that. And I remember we had many visitors who came into our church parking lot. And as the sun and the moon came over each other, it got so dark that it turned on the photo eye and, and our lights came on. And one of the visitors begged me to find a way to turn all those lights off so that it wouldn't ruin the eclipse as he was looking through his telescope. That only lasted for a couple of minutes. That was not three hours. And yet even the temperature cooled. This was not explainable by science because you can't have an eclipse during the Passover. The Passover was determined by a full moon. There was something supernatural about this darkness. And you can imagine that the activities at the temple would have to stop so they could light lamps. The activities in the marketplace would have to stop so that they could light lamps. It was something supernatural. Why? Did creation go dark during this three-hour period? Let's rewind. Let's rewind a lot. Let's rewind to the very beginning. 
Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was undeveloped and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Now, many people think of the Spirit of God as just being like God's emotions, but here it's hovering over the waters. Martin Luther describes that like a mother hen hovering over the nest until the, until the, the eggs crack and the little chicks have hatched. And we can definitely see the father there. Then we're told in verse 3, God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. There was evening and there was morning the first day. Notice God created light on the first day. It wasn't until the fourth day that he creates the sun. And yet you do not have life without light. If you don't believe me, go buy some flowers or plant some. Make sure they're good and healthy and then lock them in a dark closet for a couple of days and come back and see how well they're doing. Even our human bodies need light. When, our, when the light contacts our skin, we produce melatonin, we produce, as we're finding out with coronavirus, a very necessary vitamin D in these things. But God spoke, let there be light. I've mentioned we see the Holy Spirit and the Father. Let's now go rewinding uh, to John chapter 1. John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, the Greek, there, the Greek language there uses the imperfect for the copula was, and so it's not that he ever stopped being. It continues. It's durative. He was with God in the beginning. Through him everything was made, and without him not one thing was made that has been made. In him was life. And the life was the light of mankind. The light is shining in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Who is this word, this light that gives us life? If you haven't already figured it out, let me jump ahead to John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory he has as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, John begins calling Jesus the Word, and that all things were made through him, and apart from him, nothing that has been made was made. And so it is that when God spoke, let there be light, the reason why John calls Jesus the Word is he is the spokesman for the Trinity. The first words ever recorded of God speaking in creation were spoken by Christ because he's the word. In fact, any time God talks in the Bible, short of less than a handful of times in the New Testament, it is the pre-incarnate Christ talking in the Old Testament, and it's Christ talking in the New. God the Father, first time we're ever told of his talking is when Jesus was baptized. This is my son, in him I'm well pleased. And so Jesus is the spokesman for the Trinity, and he speaks. And the first thing spoken is something that I've already said is associated with life, light. Without light, you have death. You don't have life. That's how God designed his creation. And in fact, as John says, that he's the light no darkness can overcome. John is making a, a double point there because since Adam and Eve fell into sin, we have become uh, subjects, we've become slaves of the devil, and he lies through his teeth about us, so about sin and, and, and his being our master now, 
So that unless Christ comes and sets us free, we actually think freedom is in, is in sin. We don't even realize we're slaves to the devil. Christ must shine the light in the darkness. And he gives us eternal life by sending the Holy Spirit as, into our hearts so that we believe that he's our savior. And all this was planned by God the Father. God the Father ruled over creation to make all of this happen. Christ is the light who spoke. Christ is the way that the Son came into being. And so it's almost as if, and we got to be careful, because creation does not have emotions like the sun, but it's almost as if God hits the dimmer switch so that creation is mourning like Jesus's mother at Jesus's crucifixion. But I'm making a personification there. Truly what's going on is the one who spoke, let there be light, is dying on that cross. And so the light is dimmed to darkness, a clear indicator that the one who created all of creation, the one who spoke the light into existence is dying for you and for me. Now, when I was a teenager and I started working on cars, sometimes you'd mess around with something and the car ran worse than when you started. Huh, this is a no-brainer. Time to undo what we did. You would think chief priests, the elders, the Roman soldiers, this supernatural darkness comes in. And like I said, this could not be an eclipse because there was a full moon. That's how you determine the Passover. That was just the night before. You would think they'd go, ah, supernatural darkness? Uh, time to hit the reverse switch. Let's get this guy off the cross. You would think they would. Now, repentance is different than regret, but you would think they would at least regret what they did, but they didn't. And yet at the same time, and we're gonna get into this here in just a minute, as creation goes dark, they would not be able to see the painful expressions on Jesus's face. And we're gonna get into the true pain here that he goes through in this darkness. But at the same time, as that darkness comes, those people who mocked and ridiculed him, they became silent until he says his fourth statement from the cross. And so we see rays of divine glory as seen in Christ's passion in the darkness before Christ's death, showing this is the, com this is the death, uh, the coming death of the one who spoke, let there be light. God has become a man and he's dying for us. Let's get into his dying for us. Now, as it seems like the dimmer switches hit and the lights go off, and remember, it's noon. This is when the sun is the brightest. And if there were clouds blocking it, somebody would record it. Extra biblical sources claim that even in Rome, they have found a document in which this darkness hit the capital of Rome. There's a, a Christian Dionysus, who became a man who was a pagan living in Egypt, who became a Christian some years later, could remember this going on. But those are extra biblical sources, so I'm not going to put my faith in those. The word of God tells us there was darkness. But why? Why does the sun seem to go out and disappear? The New Testament is unfolding before the people's eyes, but the Old Testament already had linked judgment, the last day, judgment day, with the destruction of the sun. 
The minor prophet Joel chapter 2 verse 31. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and terrifying day of the Lord. Let me give you another one from the prophet Joel. Chapter 3, verse 15. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance in the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will be seated to judge all the nations. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. Because the nation's wickedness is so great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will be darkened and the stars will stop shining. Even the Old Testament shows the sun going out, being destroyed on judgment day. Now, just in case they missed the prophet Joel, one of the great prophets was the prophet Isaiah. He was read often in the synagogues. Isaiah 13 verses 9 through 10 says, Look, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger, a day to make the land desolate, a day to destroy its sinners there. For the stars of the sky and its constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened as it rises and the moon will give no light. Even the Old Testament mentions the destruction of the sun, no light in connection with Judgment Day. If I sat in three hours of unexplicable darkness and I knew the scriptures, there again, going back to that regret or even better yet, repentance, where a person actually recognizes, okay, it's against a loving God who has offered me forgiveness that I sin. And so repentance biblically is trusting your sins are forgiven. And because you are saved, not wanting to sin, not just saying, ooh, I don't like the punishment. But either way, you would think, uh, this is judgment day. Who is that on that cross? See, scripture always connects judgment day with the destruction of the sun. In fact, a couple days earlier, during Holy Week, probably after the cleansing of the temple, one of the disciples had pointed out to Jesus the beauty of the temple. And Jesus in Matthew 24, verses 29 through 30, prophesies the destruction of the temple, which you and I know happens in 77 AD. But that overlaps, he uses that also to prophesy Judgment Day. And so he says in Matthew 24, verses 29 through 30, immediately after the misery of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and at that time all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. The destruction of the sun, the light going out of the sun, is connected with God's judgment against sin, which is explicitly happens on Judgment Day. So, as the sun is covered for three hours... This is clear by the Old Testament, a clear indicator of God's judgment against sin. But this is not the last day. Creation is being forced to give a message. God is serious about sin. So serious that he will take on human flesh and he will take the punishment for your sins. So serious that God the Son abandons his deity. God the Father abandons his Son. And God the Holy Spirit abandons him 
on the cross. And so Matthew 27, verse 45, today's text, and the following verse after that, verse 46, say, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said this fellow was calling for Elijah because whether it's the Aramaic dialect or the Hebrew being recorded, it would sound very similar to that prophet's name. The silence is broken. But Jesus there is suffering the punishment of hell. He's not in hell. Hell also has the lake of burning fire and a physical burning with it. But the punishment of hell is being abandoned by God. God pours out the sins of the world onto himself and he is abandoned and forsaken so that he knows what it's like to be abandoned by God. But you and I, so long as we believe in the Lord, will never, ever, ever know what it's like to be abandoned by God. I've said it before, even the most God-hating atheist in this world even the worst devil worshiper of this world who begs and prays to have hell does not know what it's like to truly be abandoned completely by God until they die and go to hell for rejecting Jesus. Here, God is forsaking God. The darkness shows God is serious about sin, so serious that he bears the punishment for you and I. So serious that you now have eternal life. And so we see those rays of divine glory as seen in Christ's passion in the darkness before Christ's death, showing God judging his innocent son in the place of all guilty human beings in your place, in my place. And so the darkness covers the pain and agony of being abandoned by God on his face, the worst punishment of Christ's cross but it's also where you are adopted as a child. Yes, today we see rays of divine glory as seen in Christ's passion in the darkness before Christ's death, showing this is the coming death of the one who spoke, let there be light, the creator, and showing God judging his innocent son in the place of all of guilty mankind, all people for the world, so that the whole world has salvation and forgiveness offered to it, one for it, and you specifically, by trusting in Jesus, the faith the Holy Spirit has given you, know that God will never abandon you. You are forgiven. You are his child. Amen. Now to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his own blood and made us a kingdom and priest to God, his father, to him be glory and power forever. Amen.